low. And there were like uh, different research. I Googled them in Subway. I'm pretty sure like less than nine or maybe like 11 to 9% of Russians have ever been outside of Russia. And that's including uh, the states of the so-called, uh, oh God, how is it? Uh, Commonwealth of Independent Yeah, yeah, Commonwealth, states. yes, we call it Tamojane Soyuz. Um, and they they have been told that uh, the the West is rotten, uh, America is rigged, uh, Ukraine is uh, uh, whatever, and they, and they 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 liked to live in this lie. They liked to 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 you know, to think of themselves of being superior. This is the thing. So that's why they don't know how the others live. They don't have anything to compare it to. And that's why it, it's comfortable to, for them to live in this mindset. And I don't know why. I, I have I have never been a behaviorist, for God's sake. Uh, but even now, like I, I'd rather not think about Russians, but I still want to because I, I just don't get it. How in this world, in the 21st century, something so wild can exist like it can coexist but i know that the 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 like the the darkness is just the absence of light i i knew it it's like it's philosophy it, it, it's great yeah and that we can see that the moral standards and high grounds can also be like clear in comparison with something so vile but they're like our neighboring state they're not that far away but it feels like they like daryl is right like they are in a medieval <laughs> ages and it's just mind-boggling thank you for Lynn. and let's stay on this cultural point and let's let's go on to daniel next because you know he, he understands the uh the psyche of uh eastern europe pretty well i think Ferlain, tell me Ferlain, if you remember when in five months uh russian look brave any point in this campaign they look brave they stand their ground they fight to the death, to the last man. I don't see anyone. I see following blind orders. I see them looting. I see them scared. I see them doing stupid stuff like broking their tanks to go home. But I never saw them standing their ground. Again, my point, that was it. I don't feel any bravery there. I, I don't see anything that look, oh, we'll stand the siege. Stand the siege for what? Uh, sorry, but we remembered well to, and everyone who followed this war, uh, Rosgardia finding with the guys from, I don't know, from Tuva for the looting. So, Buryatia. Buryatia, okay. So, uh, I, I cannot understand. Uh, yesterday, when they start hitting the Antonovsky Bridge, I was perfectly conscious the command of South decided to make them surrender. Because it's very, very, very easy. They don't have officers. They don't have chain of command. Without chain of the command, they are not an army. They are just a gang of looters. Imagine they are scared 
uh, high Mars missile shot by Ukraine will hit Simferopol or uh, Sevastopol and their family will die. Do you think they will stay in Kherson and fight to the last man and destroy all the flats? Imagine why they want this. And the artillerymen who shelled Mikolaev are not in Kherson, are south of Kherson. These guys are garrison. Garrison troops are not the best troops. Never put the best offensive troop in the city to make police. They are Rose Guardian, probably cannon fodder. Why? I, I, I don't understand. Past two, three hours, everybody talk about Sevastopol. Where? In Kherson. We are joking. We see bravery in Russian army on, until now. We see uh, storming and destroying special operation forces or National Guard of Ukraine being destroyed. No, I, I saw a brigade keeping two divisions in Donbass. So I not understand why you are not optimistic. Sorry, I'm not military guy, but for me, things are obvious. I, I have to clarify once again. Uh, it's quality versus quantity. And even though Ukrainian troops who have been highly combat effective, who have been trained, like, they are not limitless. Some of them are right now recuperating, some are in the hospitals, and it's the fifth month of war. And precisely because I've been in the military, I know how these things work. And our forces... I've had a share of, you know, situations when they had to, um, uh, let's say, uh, reconsolidate and so on and so forth and being redeployed. And Russians as well. Like, maybe the harness on rooms are, are, aren't that good. But the quantity there, as you said, cannon fodder might do the thing. Because the attention of the ones who are, ones who are, combat effective in on the Ukrainian side might be averted by tons of those we call them uh, cockroaches I'm sorry but they are like cockroaches this this is the thing I I even right now I don't know exactly what are the numbers of Russians who were who were brought there or their families who were transferred there and what is the the like what is the percentage and it's war uh, like <laughs> This is how it works. I, in, not even mentioning that this is a war without rules, any rules. This is the thing. And uh, being always optimistic is is great, but then the reality hits you hard. Like, I can be hit in my apartment here really hard. Anyone in Kiev can be hit really hard. Vinitsa was hit because they decided to do that. So that's why I'm just being realistic. Plus, they still have like long-range missiles that can be shot from their, uh, like, uh, from from their ships and so on and so forth. So it's it's just being realistic here, like being all like all optimistic. Ukraine will win. Yeah, we will win. The question is, what 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 will be the price of our victory? This is this is what I'm trying to say. Uh, we have a lot of hands. Uh... I have the order. Don't worry. We have pickled and Darrell and Susan and Tom. Pickle. Yeah. Um. Ferland, of course we know that you are in a very tough position. You see, you saw death, you probably lost people you know, and it's it's very sad. And we understand that, right? Uh, now, when it comes to 
military into battle. Um, we have to remember that uh, Russia did not take a single big city. They did not even take Kherson. They didn't fight for it. Uh, they lost every single battle that you mentioned, except Mariupol, which costed them pretty much a quarter of their forces, that, or actually even half the forces that they were um, fighting with. Now, in this battle, uh, this is the first battle that Ukraine has every single advantage, and Russia doesn't have one. Uh, your forces are bigger than what they have inside. They, they have more... one advantage in in terms of having tons of hostages. That's, this yeah, is their... that's, that's what I was actually uh, tell, uh, um, uh, t- telling you why uh, you're, you're pessimistic about the massacres that's going to happen. But the thing is, for Lane, it already did. Uh, you know, they, they are already killing people there. And every single day that this is delayed means thousands more of people getting killed. Yes, it's a very tough thing to do. It's like surgery. You will have your body opened up and you will suffer. But without it, the city will die and hundreds of thousands. But this is exactly what was I saying. And they are trying to make it look like we should be optimistic in terms of... That's why I'm being realistic. It's already happening. Right. Maybe you have missed that part of... Right. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, uh, yes, I'm, I'm saying that you have the right to be very sad about what happened uh, to Ukraine. It's, it's just natural. But the thing is, in this battle, uh, the um, uh, okay. So, if uh, well, let's say Bucha and on what happened there, and uh, in, in when they were retreating after being defeated. Uh, with absolutely no advantage at all for Ukraine at, at the time of start uh, at start of the war, Ukraine had two thousand, uh, actually even like less than a thousand javelins, and that is it. We didn't give anything else. They didn't even have machine guns that is enough for uh, their forces. Like if you uh, see the early uh, reports, uh, you, you would uh, you you would actually be lucky to get bullets. Uh, that is not the case anymore. Uh, Ukraine now has an advantage in their weapons. You have the ability to strike anything without 70 kilometers with an absolute accuracy that you could hit a, a, a Russian shoulder on the head 70 kilometers away. They don't. Uh, they, uh, you have more tanks than they do, uh, believe it or not. Uh, they, um, uh, you have an absolute higher morale. Uh, you have uh, so like so it's three things right you have equipment you have people and you have terrain now when it comes to a city like Kurasan with high rises it's actually it it, it it seems like a small difference but if you um, in the countryside and you have only one floor uh, th- there is a difference in uh, the uh, the way that uh, partisans could uh, could could work uh, in in um, in um, when you're outnumbered uh, no matter what weapons your enemy have, uh, chaos happens, and I, I actually witnessed it. Um, uh, people start uh, throwing Molotov cocktails from above. Uh, they wouldn't give them uh, food. They, uh, you would go to a, a gas station, and the guy would just burn the gas station so that you don't get any fuel. You will have no logistics. Uh, you will have no way to uh, resupply your artillery. Uh, the only way they took Severodonetsk and, and uh, the uh, things uh, the, that they did in the Donbass is they destroy everything. In, uh, so there is no way to win against what they did in, in, uh, in the Donbass. You just keep firing artillery 
and kill everything in front of you. Like in World War One, that I was talking about the artillery barrage. There is no a way to counter that, except if you actually don't have the shells, which they won't. And even if they do, are they gonna fire on themselves? Because you would be fighting street to street. Uh, street to street, there is no way a Russian would be more motivated than a Ukrainian. Now, the only thing that's gonna be a, a huge tragedy, they will kill a lot of people. The thing is, they already are. And the way, the more you prolong it, the worse it's gonna get. You know, it's uh, it's tough. But I, I, you could put me on the record. I think this will be over in a couple of weeks, and uh, it's going to be a huge victory. And you know, at that point, I, I believe that um, we should believe in Ukraine, and uh, the the same way that we said it's going to fall in three days. This to say that Kherson would actually be rough is even less uh, or more pessimistic than saying it was going to fall in three days because they have every. Advantage. Okay, we have Mr. Pickle um, on the record. Yeah, uh, I will just intervene. I don't, I don't get it. Why you all think that I sound pessimistic? I, I sound realistic. I've been there. I've seen it. That's why I'm being realistic. Um, and you're not quite right about the numbers. I don't think we are have bigger. Like maybe we have better quality of tanks, but not the number. Uh, okay, let's go. Uh, we have Daryl, then Susan, and then Tom. Yes, Daryl. Daryl, please go ahead. Yeah. Um, when we were talking about the the attitudes. Uh, one of the things I was reading that book, the uh, gates of Europe. And uh, one of the things that struck me uh, just oddly was when the uh, SAR uh, of Russia at the time sent the mutilated body back to the Hetman uh, in uh, response to them rebelling and uh, siding with the Polish. I think it was, in a battle and and it was that that type of brutality of a mutilated sending the mutilated body back uh, to the uh, to the headsman to let them know how they felt about what happened and looking at that even way back in the 187 I think it was the at the 18 early parts of the 18 or late 1700s for that brutality to exist as part of the culture of a country. That's what we are facing with, uh, with the, with, that's what's being faced going against the Russians right now is you're looking at people that that's how they, their history has been that type of brutality. And, uh, you know, it's, a, the, I found the book really interesting in, uh, you know, even picking up those small points of uh, how the, Ru- the the whole Russian idealism against how they feel against the Ukrainians as a people that they even back then they did not see the uh, little Ukrainian the U- little Russian as a people in their own right. And that's I just wanted to you know I just thought about that point and I wanted to bring it up when we were talking about uh, the cult the the mindset of the Russians. Thank you, Daryl. I think that's a really good point to make. Uh, next, we go to Susan, and then Tom, and then Luca. Susan, I think I know what Luca wants to talk about later. Susan? Uh, so I, I, I think I'd like two points. One is, um, I, from what I have heard, I think that the uh, 
the Russians are raised in a culture where they cannot trust anybody. They can't trust their neighbors. They can't even trust their family members. Uh, and so the idea that um, they would confide in anybody about plans to uh, surrender would be hard for me to um, hard for me to uh, think is a real possibility, especially now that listening to Ferlaine, I think it's clicked. And the other thing is um, regarding Ferlaine's uh, pessimism. I I think what she's trying to say is she doesn't she has no faith in any grace from the Russians. She's pessimistic about them acting like people in the West would act in any way to accept a surrender. She, I don't think, and I could be, I could be wrong, but correct me if I'm wrong, Ferlaine, I don't think that you're pessimistic that Ukraine will be victorious and take Kherson. I, I think that your pessimism is that the, is, is that there could be any grace by the Russians in their departure. Absolutely. I have, like, uh, no doubts that we will regain all territories of Ukraine. It is going to take us time and resources unfortunately human resources overall like it's 100 percent true uh i'm just looking at it from different perspectives and what i'm i am like let's say concerned yeah deeply concerned is the let's say uh what kind of behavior um, russians will um i guess show us this time like, is is it going to be the same as we saw before? Is it going to be something different and more vile? I, like, I can't predict it, obviously. I, I'm just getting myself ready for whatever is to come. So I won't get more overwhelmed as I was. Like, th- this is this is my way of adapting to this reality. I'm not being pessimistic. I'm not being optimistic. I'm looking at things as they are. So then, really, the, the reality won't hit me hard if it's worse than I expect. And if it's better, I will feel relieved. Uh, Tom wants to say something, I suppose. Tom, please go ahead. Yeah, we, we've got an expression. I don't know whether it's a British or American expression, but it's... um hope for the best, prepare for the worst. So, you know, it, it's good to hope that something's going to go really well because, you know, that motivates you to do it. And retaking a city from the Russian invaders is, you know, a dangerous thing to do. So obviously the Ukrainians need that hope. Um, but I think I, I agree with um, Felaine. I think she's trying to be as realistic as possible or, or erring on the side of caution. Is another expression because, you know, if we know that the Russians aren't going to be as motivated, we know it's not their best troops. We know it's like their Rosgardia, their sort of police type troops um, that are in her son. We know they're not going to be as motivated to fight as the Ukrainians are protecting their own country. They're not going to want to lay down their lives for Mother Russia, no matter what the propaganda is. They'd rather flee and live. Um, but, you know, if people underestimate them then they'll take more casualties and so no doubt the ukrainian commanders who've been incredibly competent and really really wise strategically from the start are probably planning for the worst case scenario the highest level of russian resistance that they can because if they do that and they encounter it they'll take less casualties than if they're overconfident on the other hand 
if they roll in and the Russian morale breaks quite quickly and, you know, it's not a surrender, but individual units rout and flee and they take the city a lot more easily than they predicted, well, that's great. You know, that's a pleasant surprise. It's much better to prepare for the worst and have a pleasant surprise than to uh, underestimate your enemy and end up, you know, with an unpleasant shock. So I suspect that when the Ukrainians do eventually really push into Kherson, they'll go in with absolutely everything to ensure that they take it as quickly as possible, and hopefully with as few casualties as possible. And they, they might be using something of a sledgehammer to crack a nut. They might, you know, take longer and put more troops in than are required because they want to make sure absolutely that they crush Russian resistance there. Um, and, and then, you know, as Domin has said, as and when they do push the Russians out of there, I don't think they'll immediately push them back a further 50 kilometres. I dare say the Russians, if they are able to, will start shelling us on from, you know, from the south and from the east. Um, and, and the you know, the war will continue. So I think Fulane's trying very carefully to be as realistic as possible. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just think that's a sensible way of thinking about things, really. Thank you, Tom. Actually, that's probably the, 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 the clearest and more eloquent way of saying that out loud. Thank you for for that. And I probably should explain to you, being and with the military for such a long time in my head, there are enemies most likely course of action and enemies most dangerous course of action. And in my head, they they are both at the same time. For those of you who are military, you know what I'm talking about. This is my mindset right now. Yeah. I'm thinking about most dangerous and most likely. Yeah, and there's, yeah. there's a difference between, I think, the way that the American military trains and the way that the Russian military believes in its own superiority. Like, I think clearly by quite some margin, you know, the US military is the most powerful military on the planet, but by quite some margin. But I think they always train with the assumption that their enemies are really, really competent and dangerous. And they always seem to train on the assumption that, like, this bad thing could happen, this bad thing could happen, this bad thing could happen, and this is what we'll do to counter it. And then occasionally you see them in action and they just completely crush people. Whereas the Russians seem to have this attitude of, we are the best, we are the best. There's no one can defeat us, we're the Russians. And obviously, you know, that's been determined to be bullshit because they're vastly more incompetent than I think any of us realise. So there's a difference between a kind of hope or pride or belief that things are going to go well and preparing for the worst. If you prepare for the worst, you'll actually outperform someone that thinks everything's going to be great, if, if that makes sense, because you'll, you'll react to dangers and the worst case scenarios and you'll have a plan of what to do with it. Um, yeah, just just... I don't know. I don't want people to be overconfident. This war could drag on for months. This war could drag on past next winter. We don't know. But I think if we're in it for the long run and the Ukrainians are more successful than we think and they kick the Russians out sooner, that's great. If we think, ah, they'll, they'll rout the Russians within the next six months and they don't, we might be uh, somewhat demotivated in six months' time, if that makes sense. Thank you, Tom. Um, Luca. Um Hey, Domen. Yeah, I'll talk about Draghi later. They're talking right now in the, in oh, the Senate. Oh, damn it. I thought you'd talk about Draghi now. I was, I was well, bracing I mean, myself I, for... 
you know, I mean, I can tell you the he went into the Senate and he asked uh, he asked for um, uh, well, he can still get like a majority, right? So he is asking for a majority vote now, um, and uh, it'll be over in the next uh, few hours. They're talking now, so I'll connect later tonight and give you the update based on that. I still give it like a good. Um, probability that he'll get the majority uh, but you know we don't know so um, yeah no I was kind of gonna ask like I heard lots of optimist, uh, uh, optimism myself in the last uh, uh, I was like listening in and not talking the last uh, maybe day or so and then uh, also like uh, Mr. Pico oh did he drop he was saying this will be over in, in a week so I have two questions. It's like, what will it be over? Taking back Kherson? Um, and what the optimism, uh, why all of a sudden do we have all this optimism? I know the Ferlane is less optimist. I'm just kind of trying to understand, you know, what's the optimist uh, case right now? The optimist case about Kherson is relatively straightforward, right? It means Russians out of Kherson ASAP quickly as opposed to taking a long time. Um, the optimist case about the whole war at large that's very different um it's a very different um uh kind of proposition um the big question is about Kherson. the optimist case being that you know russians leave relatively expeditiously uh, sort of stuff that daniel was saying uh as well and do not do undue additional harm to the uh, any any additional harm or any harm to the civilian populations undue but do not do m- that nearly as much harm to the civilian population as they have with previous retreats from areas around uh, Kiev or Chernihiv or you know, wherever else. Um, the um, optimistic case would be that they you know, retreat out of the city, find the city untenable because the bridge connections are no longer usable. Um, the pessimistic case is they dig down and it's something like a Stalingrad or, or something along those lines. Or they dig in and you know, perpetrate uh, genocidal act after genocidal act after genocidal act um, while fighting street to street, building to building. That's the pessimistic case. Um, that's, I think that outlines it reasonably well. Um, okay, so I guess this aligns the fact that the Ukrainians start to blow up some bridges and, you know, start to move closer and closer. Um, yeah, I got it. Um, and so we expect this to happen in pretty soon, right? In the next couple of weeks or something. Uh, maybe next couple of days. Entirely plausible, uh, seeing what uh, strikes were conducted on the on the bridge and yesterday morning and today morning. Um, Portland, you had your hand up a second ago. Um, do, you, do you want to comment a little bit on the bridge? What you've seen since you woke up again? Okay, maybe Portland is away from the keyboard at the moment or the phone at the moment. Uh, let's go on to uh, uh, Boris and then to Daniel. Boris. Hi. Uh, yeah, I don't think if they cut from uh, supply, uh, if they cut, if the bridge is blown, if the bridge is blown, um, they will resist for long. There is no drivers for for Russians to to <laughs> to turn uh, Ukrainian city of Kherson to Russian another Russian. Stalingrad, uh, just no drivers. I mean, what what's the reason for resistance? Like, what? Uh, like, okay, some Chechen barrier guards scaring them. Like, how many Chechen uh, barrier uh, uh, 
uh, guards in, in, in Kherson. Like, I mean, it's not serious. It's not like uh, Stalingrad when uh, uh, barrier guards of... Uh, no, that time it was um, in KVD. Uh, they were like, they had thousands of uh, special forces just forcing front line to resist, uh, pushing soldiers, uh, basically peasants very often, to die. Uh, it won't work in Kherson I don't, from tactic point of view. In general, uh, optimistic. Uh, I mean, we uh, the West has no. I mean, not even the West. The civilization have no means to lose this war. I mean, it will never. It will. It won't stop in Ukraine. Definitely. I mean, if if Russia not defeated, if the regime in Moscow didn't change, would uh, then uh, it means just delay from next attacks to Canada or to Austria or to, by the way, to very unexpected rather uh, uh, direction from Moscow, because uh, that's what Kremlin likes. They, they don't do it uh, front to front. They tried it in Ukraine and basically obviously failed, already failed to attack uh, like front to front. Um, so, yeah, the war won't stop if regime, until, until, uh, the new Hitler, new Führer in Moscow, not uh, not uh, changed, and uh, regime did not change. Okay. That's it. Thank you, Boris. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, Daniel, go ahead. I like how Tom put it, uh, and is very very valuable how he put it, and that is my general opinion. Um, is best thing to be prepared for the worst. I'm optimistic on this side. I will be very, very optimistic because I see their reaction from the head to the bottom. Uh, sorry, but uh, they're losing, and they're losing badly. Uh, how, how costly was Sivers Donetsk? 11,000 people just dead and another 30 wounded. So that was Severodonetsk frontal assault, wave after wave and salvo of artillery. Probably they don't hit all Ukraine, all the war, how much they put in Severodonetsk. So it's a huge difference. Uh, you stay in the city, for example. You are cut from the south and you maybe try to push to east uh, on the bank of the river. And guess what? They have long-range artillery, they have partisans, and you are in a hostile situation with 100 Ukrainians, 100,000 Ukrainians in Kherson. It's not about the odds, it's not about competence. Um, from their problem, the real problem is the chain of command. And sorry if I still repeat this. They don't have the officers, officers with experience. They don't have the generals, the colonels. They are dead. They are dead past two weeks. They are, they are like a horde in this moment. And yes, they will do probably atrocious things because when you don't have uh, officers to keep the discipline, you, you get all the bad stuff we saw in Bucha and Irpin. But also, that is not an effective army. 
and is the worst nightmare of any army. Your army, your soldiers become a horde, become people who don't obey, people with weapons. So, in my opinion, this Kherson business will turn very fast and very favorable. I'm, repeat, I'm not military, but how can you keep morale without officers in Russian army? How can you do it? They don't have uh, NCOs. I will, I will explain to you how they will do it. They do have NCOs. They are shitty in, in comparison with the Western ones, I, I can reassure you. But to keep everything in order and in place, it's usually the task of the NCOs. Uh, senior NCOs to be like uh, regimental warrant officer, company warrant officer, like like CVORSM, like those are the ones who are usually and higher ups who are making sure that the troops behave and the officers are usually passing their strategic way. So we have a tactical, let's say, approach and strategic approach, if you put it uh, briefly, lightly, to more understandable manner. You, you, the, the thing is, like, you all sometimes make this comparison with, like, officers in West and officers in Russia. They have a lot of colonels. They have a lot of, uh, a lot of generals just because the promotion system works differently. They have tons of officers. Yes, their, their level of education and their level of expertise and experience varies. Can, I concur. But overall... Um, it's like too many chiefs, not many soldiers. This, this is this is what we are dealing with as well. For instance, to to become a major, it will take you like five years, six years in Russia, maybe maybe seven. Uh, to become a colonel, well, maybe like seven to nine. It it they they have it's like I don't know how it's like hot cut cross buns. They usually just have that they erect them every every year. So that's that's why they have a lot of officers, not a lot of um, experienced uh, senior NCOs, and tons of recruits. Uh, but but yes, I agree with you that some of the officers were annihilated a couple of weeks ago. But once again, the chain of command was they 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 just got everyone swapped, and that's all. And if they have some sort of um, overall idea of what they're going. They still have the intent of the higher command. If that was an intent of the higher command, yeah, they can they can move on even without. It, it depends what kind of. Um, it depends what is the level of their like intellectual understanding of what's going on. This is this is my my kind of thought. Uh, Domin, do you know I have, who was yeah, the first? Yeah, yeah, I, I, okay. I keep a list. I keep a list because it's too many people to remember. Um, let's go on to Luca, then Ben, then Raver, then Nina, then Boris, and then Jerry. Luca. Uh, yeah, so I was like looking at the map of Ukraine, right? And I was thinking, so um, maybe kind of like a shock and awe strategy. Um, you know, if there is a battle of Kherson for it not to be um, uh, something that gets stalled and then it, uh, it impacts the civilian population, um, maybe move in there and then uh, uh, start to strike Crimea immediately. Um, and uh, basically, just basically create a sort of like a, 
um, psychological meltdown. And then I was wondering if from there, uh, the idea is that you can then move uh, east, basically go back, uh, uh, you know, start to move east towards uh, Mariupol. I'm th- I was kind of like thinking that maybe it's a plausible strategy. And then I think that there is a secret weapon. I don't know if you just saw that the governor um, just posted a pretty interesting uh, photo. I just added it to the... Um, I just added it to the uh, shared space up there. Do you guys see it? Yeah, this was like two days ago. Uh, Schwarzenegger putting up a, a photo of Crimea saying Crimea is Ukraine for anyone yeah, who can't uh, says, look at it right now. Yeah, it says I'll be back. Yeah, I, I thought I thought that was I hadn't didn't see it before, but I thought that's that's pretty interesting. Um, uh, is there any? Is there any reality in such type of a plan, you guys think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Axel has been discussing this a little bit on and off, uh, but he says that definitely there is. Uh, you know, there's a question of whether Crimea is going to be returned to Ukraine uh, militarily, uh, that is to say, uh, kinetically, or it's going to be returned to Ukraine through negotiations afterwards, um, because it is a little bit more difficult to get into Crimea than uh, other parts of occupied territories. Uh, however, however, it has to be noted that, you know, if and when attackums are in theater and all of those air defenses are, that are on Crimea, and there are many, can be taken out remotely, all the S-400 sites, S-300 sites, uh, that can make a whole lot of a difference already. And uh, then, you know, it's, it's more plausible. Um, so he's asking me, can I repeat this plan quickly? Uh, nope, because it's not quick and because I don't remember the more intricate bits of it. So I'm very sorry, but you're going to have to wait for Axel to do it because uh, I don't want to misstate anything. You misattribute something there. I hope you understand. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that was named at you, Lucas, at the end, real quick. Just answering it in, in voice. Um, yeah, no, it's not. It's not easy. It's not straightforward, but it certainly can be done. It wouldn't be the first time that Crimea was entered uh, and uh, and seized back from the north. Right, happened during the Second World War. Happened during the uh, quote unquote Russian Civil War, and it happened. Uh, and well, the Russian Empire did it, but the Crimean uh, Khanate was still running it. So uh, it's been done before. Thank you, Luca. Let's go on to Ben and then to Raver. Ben. All right. Uh... I was question was directed at Tom, but I'll put it to the room and see what everyone thinks. Um, as far psychologically, as far as the leadership goes, especially in Russia, do you actually feel that they think they're winning? Not the outward bravado, not all that stuff. When they're alone by themselves thinking, you wonder what they're actually, what they actually feel because Russia's floundering. They've been floundering since late February, since actually late in the day on the 24th, they've been floundering. Ukraine has objectives and plans, and it seems Russia is, they just, they're just flopping like a fish out of water. What do you guys think the, the leadership feels? Do you actually think they could, they feel as though they can win this thing? Yeah, they always think they can win this thing because for them, Victory is not an objective category. It's uh, it's a entirely subjective category. Um, it is whatever happens. It's a, is a win for them because to their domestic populace, they will represent anything and everything is a win, one way or another. However, unbelievable it might sound. Um, so yeah, I I wouldn't um, 
I wouldn't think too much uh, too much about that. Um, I just want to note really quick that we have a couple of, of guests scheduled today. First, we have Shum, uh, that's his call sign, who's a volunteer combat medic. It's 2 p.m. Eastern time. That, that's in two hours time, two hours and eight minutes from now. Uh, whatever time it is, wherever you are, add two hours, and that's when we'll be joined by Shum. And then uh, an hour and a half after that, we will be joined by, uh, sorry, let me just get the name right, uh, by Lukas Tomitsky, who is a founder of a hedge fund called LRT Capital Management. Um, and he will be talking to us about all manner of things, markets, including grain uh, and similar. So uh, at in two hours time, we'll be joined by Shum. And then in three and a half hours time, so an hour and a half after that, we'll be joined by Lukas Tomitsky. Uh, to talk about the more market aspects of things. Uh, this is just uh, the guest that we have scheduled for today. Uh, that having been said, let's go to Raver. Raver, go ahead. Okay, can you guys hear me? Loud and clear. Okay, so uh, people talking about uh, uh, sudden mass Russian surrender, um, I, I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, my views are pretty well known on this. Uh, another port of supporting evidence, and hopefully Tom or Portland is around and can back me up on this is when people are stressed, yes, uh, they will run, but their first instinct is, is to go to ground, is to, is to just sit tight, hide, wait for rescue, or, or hope, hope to be unnoticed. And on top of that, you know, most of these Russians aren't really interacting with a whole lot of officers. Uh, they're interacting with their buddies. Everything in, in a high-stress situation, your world shrinks to what you can immediately see around you, <clears throat> what you can immediately hear around you and nothing else really exists. And so I think the tendency is going to be for the Russians to dig in like ticks. I don't think we're going to see a lot of surrenders even individually because being able to, being willing to break faith with your buddies needs a weird combination of both courage and cowardice, and it, which is why it's just not real common. Uh, so, you know, hopefully Portland or Tom can, can back me up on this, and I'll go back to being quiet. Thank you, Raver. Uh, Tom's not here. Portland, do you want to back up, Raver? Okay, I think Portland is um, probably making breakfast. Sorry about that. I'm having a spot of technical difficulty with uh, with the space. Um, yeah, it took me a second to get the uh, the microphone to play ball. So um, I tend to both agree and disagree on the small scale. Um, the tendency is is to dig in like ticks. But one thing that you you can say is that if you take a soldier and you deprive them of ammunition in particular, uh, but if you cut them off from resupply, communication with higher authority, and the ability to... Um, make a meaningful attempt at getting home uh, if you do all three of these things simultaneously and then you put them into a place where it is obvious that if they stand they will die and they will accomplish nothing by standing and dying you know when when you give people enough time um, you know you for example you give them, the information you make plain to them that if they fight you, they will die. And then you give them an hour and a half 
maybe two and a half hours to sort of sit and ruminate on the fact that they are going to die, then usually you get is mass surrenders. Uh, we saw this in Iraq in 1991. We saw it in uh, again in 2003. We saw it with large portions of the Afghans. Um, we we even saw it with with Dash, who are amongst the most fanatical fighters uh, in the entire world. Um, they they were willing to fight on as long as they thought that there was a chance, no matter how narrow, that they might be able to pull out a win. But soldiers who are willing to risk or gamble their lives expect to get something for that. And it doesn't mean they need to get something for themselves, but they expect to be able to accomplish some sort of larger strategic goal um, by sacrificing their lives. If you make it abundantly clear that, no, you will accomplish nothing, you will just die, that is where you get mass surrenders. So I think in the specifics, uh, looking at the looking at the terrain, looking at the balance of forces, um, looking at the the level of psychological preparedness on the Russians' part, you know, I could see a mass surrender occurring if some of the stuff. Um, that we're seeing geared up around her song. If that goes down the way I think it might go down, uh, we will probably see mass surrenders at her song. If it doesn't go down the way it looks like it's going to go down, you know, we will more likely see um, a general split between people, um, genetics, and literally walking back to Russia because there's nothing else to do. And people who uh, dig in and try to fight on to the last. Um, All of this depends on Ukraine being able to slam shut the jaws of a trap from the north and the south simultaneously. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing is, is that the southern jaw looks like it's pretty robust, but the northern jaw... Uh, maybe less so, and it's got much less agreeable uh, territory that it's got to fight through. So, yeah, in in the specifics here, I'm not thinking that we're going to see, you know, an army-wide mass surrender, but we could see units up to the divisional level surrendering because they realize that they are just going to be killed if they don't, and they aren't going to accomplish anything. Uh, if they fight on with, you know, no coordination with higher authority, uh, no supplies, um, and no sign that there's any particular appetite from Russian high command to relieve. Thank you, Portman. Um, so what do you think, real quick, because you haven't had your set on this yet, um, do you think that the strikes against the bridge are making it more likely for Russians to retreat from Kherson, either across the bridge or towards the north-northeast, towards Novokakovka from the city of Kherson? Or do you think it doesn't really play a role in that? 
I think that this is a threat posturing measure. Uh, Ukraine is making sure that the people that are still on the West Bank of that river know that their options are retreat now um, or get cut off, surrounded, and forced either to surrender or die in large numbers. So if I'm, if I'm a Russian conscript and I'm looking at the situation and I know that, um, you know, both of my major divisional commands have been annihilated, uh, my air defenses are practically non-existent, um, you know, 30% of my ammunition has been destroyed and the remainder has to be trucked in from uh, from twice as far away, meaning that I'm going to have my allotment of ammunition divided by three. Um, I'm getting very nervous right at that point. Because you either have enough ammunition and food and water and fuel and lubricant to fight... Or you don't. And unfortunately, modern industrial war um, requires truly stupendous supplies of all three. Um, If my one major lodgment point that I need to keep me supplied at the end of what is already a very tenuous supply line is looking like it can be destroyed at will by the Ukrainians. Once again, that's making me intensely nervous. I definitely don't want to be trapped with my back to the river in a city full of um, pissed-off Ukrainians with very sharp kitchen knives. Um, With the Ukrainian army uh, winding up a knockout punch at me uh, with you know, four to six hundred tanks and comfortably north of a thousand infantry fighting vehicles. That just sounds like a terrible time all around as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, Portland. Uh, we have Boris and Jerry. Uh, Battlemus, if you have an announcement or something uh, else, you know, time sensitive, feel free. Yeah, I, I just want to, I was in the back end, you know, doing doing my thing, working as, as we do. And I just want to mention if, uh, if you have uh, like uh, a technical problem, don't DM the the Maria report account uh, because there's nobody there to read your DMs. I go in like twice a day and read them. And I think Axel goes in once a day or something like that. But if you if you're having a problem, it is most uh, uh, the the best thing to do is to DM the co-hosts. The co-hosts are are real people. They're active, uh, and and they they most of the time we can we can solve the problems for you. Or we can point you in a direction uh, that that would that get them uh, solved. Uh, one thing to Portland before I go, um, you know, in in the Russian uh, structure, if you're Ivan sitting in the trench, uh, you know, day in day out, how would you even know that? Uh, like you, you, what I'm getting at is their situational awareness is so their paradigm is so closed. 
whatnot. They wouldn't know what the big picture, they wouldn't know that the JFO is bearing down on them and uh, and whatnot. All they'll know is that uh, Igor that went out, you know, last night to the to the drop point to go pick up the rations, there, there was nobody there to drop rations off to them. So, uh, you know, that's... And, I, I suppose your suspicions would would raise after the third or fourth night when you go to your DP and there there's no drop point you know there's there there's no exchange of of of, of supplies so I I'm I'm wondering like are are we are we uh, personifying the 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 soldier uh, like the individual uh, uh, fire teams and whatnot that are in the trenches uh, far too much because. I think they're pretty blind to what's going on in the big picture. So, yes and no. The first thing is, is that there is no, there is no information sharing system in the world more capable and proficient than the E4 Mafia. Okay, and this is the same in all militaries everywhere. Junior non-coms talk to other junior non-coms, and for example, um. I might not know um, what the battalion or brigade commander is up to, but I know someone who knows his steward. I know somebody that knows the person that, like, puts together his PowerPoint presentations and so on. And therefore, if everyone in a specific camp command post... um, gets summarily whacked sometimes, that information is going to get transferred through the E4 Mafia because somebody who knows, uh, you know, uh, Eagle Private Scheme is going to know that that command post got whacked and, you know, Eagle Private Scheme got killed and they're going to have a pretty solid idea about who else got killed along the way with it. Um, Then you're going to start getting questions like, huh, the ammunition supply's a bit thin today. And then the ammunition's a bit thinner tomorrow. And the ammunition supply's a bit thinner the next day. And then you go three days without um, without food resupply. And then you start realizing that there's not enough diesel to go around. Um, if it affects one part of the battalion, though, sorry, uh, one battalion in a brigade, those people are going to run off to the other brigades, sorry, other battalions in the brigade, and they're going to see what they can scrounge. So by the time you are you know, making any kind of significant preparations to either dig in or go on the offensive. Everybody that to know that the situation is fucked uh, and they aren't going to be about telling each other. Uh, maybe maybe uh, uh, you, you kind of alluded it, alluded to it there. But uh, just so everybody knows, every soldier in the world is a thieving bastard. And if you leave your kit down for a second, I will come and steal it. One hundred percent. So that's what Portland was saying is the tactical reacquisition of uh, of supplies. And we have zero problems going out to uh, other units and taking their stuff. 
So I can give you a pretty good example of this, actually. And this was like one of the high points of my military career emotionally. Uh, Somebody actually wound up making a meme out of it. I wound up uh, chewing out an American officer for getting on at one of my guys because we were in a separate chain of command. And this guy was technically senior to me, but like he was American. He was uh, he was a leg and we were doing cool guy shit. So this guy chews out one of my guys and I fucking reamed him. I, 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 I am casually foul mouthed. Imagine how obscene I can be when I set my mind to it. Um, and this guy who was a brand new guy, like, I think he was like 22. Um, he'd just gotten through, uh, he'd just, he, yeah, he, he just gotten in and he looks at me and he says, uh, doc, 